0: Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA Benchmarking Study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA Benchmarking Study is just one of many ways it provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com. Hello and welcome to RA Edge. This is Mark Bruno, Managing Director of the Wealth Management Group at Informa Connect. And we are incredibly excited and delighted to have a very special guest here, a longtime friend. Michael Goodman, who is the founder and president of WealthStream Advisors here in New York. Michael, thank you so much for taking some time to join us. appreciate it. Thank you, Mark. I'm really happy to be here. It's great to connect with you, and I'm looking forward to our time together. And I think we have a lot to talk about because I know you've been very busy, and there has been a lot of activity um, in the RIA space that we can kind of talk about in some general terms. But you know, I would love for our audience, I don't know how many are familiar with Wellstream. I got to know you years ago, came through when I was running the legacy Moss Adams benchmarking studies. I know that you're a student of the game, right? As they say, um, and always participating in industry research, always trying to figure out how your firm compares to other firms. And, and most importantly, what levers you can pull to drive growth. So I can say firsthand, you know, Michael, I've gotten to know you. I've Watch the firm grow. You just crossed the billion-dollar mark last year. Congratulations, by the way. Um, you are one of the more thoughtful people I've gotten to know, and I can't wait to kind of get into your strategy around some M&A, but also your organic growth in this discussion here this afternoon. Before we get into too much detail, though, Michael, would you mind just giving a little bit of a history and a brief overview of uh, Walshine for our audience, please? Sure. Happy to do so, and thanks for saying those things. the The firm is about
1: 25 years old. And I say the firm, and that's when I, I started and got in the business. And the firm's kind of gone through some cycles. So obviously, I started the business from scratch after uh, leaving the accounting world as a CPA. And so, uh, you know, I break the, the sort of the history into a couple of sections, if you will. You know, first was survival, if you will, getting started, right? And then I had a nice sort of solo practice, uh, good lifestyle business. And then from there, you know, very conscious decision to sort of make it into more of a firm, probably just From my experience of working in public accounting, thinking of like a partnership in a firm where you have, you know, professional services model and uh, the idea of me not being the only advisor. So made a conscious decision, made that change, brought on some more advisors. and uh, and tried to grow the firm and that's been, you know, by far the most rewarding and exciting thing. And now we're kind of a a multi-generational, there are uh, seven other shareholders besides me. So we have multi-generational shareholders. Uh, We're looking to increase that in the next uh, 12 months as well. And it's all inside people that own own stock in the company. As you said, we're about a billion one, a little over a billion one right now. Uh, There's about 22 employees and there are a little under 400 clients. And we're in New York City.
0: Excellent. Um, and what is the, if there is such thing as a typical client, what is the profile of a typical client for Wall Street?
1: That can go a lot of different ways when you talk about what your ideal profile is for a client. You know, the most important thing to us is somebody who we can make a difference in their lives. As far as from a business standpoint, we're you know typically looking for a client somewhere between two and 20. That's about the sweet spot for us from an AUM standpoint. I would also say that we have a lot of clients bigger than that and some clients smaller than that too, of course. We work with a lot of entrepreneurs and a lot of business owners. I would say one of the biggest niches that we have is that we work with a lot of people with public company stock and their compensation. That's a bit
0: of a, a strong niche for us. Okay, great. Good to know. And I think you've grown quite a bit over the last couple of years here. Um, and I wanted to make sure that we started out just by you know, going through some of the history and the MA that you've been involved in. Um, when we were talking you know, a little bit earlier, you used the word you know, modest to describe some of the acquisitions that you've done. But I, I'll leave it to you to offer a little bit more detail. Can you just walk us through the three transactions that you've done and more specifically, why you actually engaged in these deals and what they did for Wall Street?
1: Sure. I'd be happy to. I, I will say that the, the first deal that we did wasn't one we were looking for. I was in the, in the midst of really focusing on building out the second generation and making sure that I was you know, not going to uh, hurt the firm by being the, the primary person here. So we were really focused on having other people start to be able to do business development and really focused on getting that second gen going. And i 've always, like you said earlier, been really interested in the profession, love the business of the business. I mean, I love taking care of clients, and I still do that, but i 've always been fascinated by the business of the business and almost a fault learning about how things and I never really just envisioned myself as somebody who was doing a lot of m and a I was really always more focused on just being the best we could at taking care of our clients and, and having a great place to work then somebody introduced me to somebody who had a small RIA kind of trying to build it, wasn't getting to the size they wanted to. And they, they were given an offer they couldn't refuse as far as getting back to the W-2, if you will. And we met, we got along really well. We It was a very short, uh, you know, most of these deals take a long time to kind of date and figure it all out, and make sure it happens. But we were kind of forced to do this in a quick period of time. And you while even though it was a very small deal, uh, I got the opportunity to go through all the due diligence elements. Right, you go through due diligence, sure. you go through compliance, you go through the legal, and it it was a great experience and it worked out really well. And it was a good way for me to get started without a, kind of a low risk transaction.
0: Yeah, it's uh, the first one. <laughs> doesn't matter how big or how small, it's a brand new world. And we obviously got the chance to work together when I was at Echelon right before I was at Informa. And it's complicated, no matter how small the deal can get. So glad to hear that you got that first one in. And then what drove the second and the third one? And how did the experiences differ as the deals got, whether they were larger or more complex or both?
1: Yeah. So I would say there were two things that drove us to continue to do M&A. The first was was my, my realization that the firm needs to grow at a certain percentage in order to make sure that there's opportunity for the younger folks. As I said, I was really trying to build out that second gen. And, and then the third gen we have now, is just very exciting. So I need to make sure the firm grows at, at a, a good enough clip that, the, that everybody here feels that there's going to be great opportunities for them to stay here and build their careers here. We don't have any private equity money or anything that's pushing me from an ROI standpoint. So that's not, that's not what's driving it. The second thing is, I really enjoyed the first transaction. It was yeah. a great experience. The not only because the seller was was a good person and all, but and we had a great experience with the clients. But I really, really enjoyed sort of developing a muscle I didn't really know that I had, and it was just a wonderful, like uh, loving the business of the business kind of experience. So we started to really think about okay, we want to do more of this and we want to do bigger ones because like I said, this was pretty small. So what is it going to look like? What do we need to do to prepare ourselves? And how do we make ourselves an attractive buyer to the kinds of firms that we're looking to buy?
0: Yeah, and I definitely want to talk about that in a little bit more detail because we know how complicated, how uh, competitive the M&A market is right now. So I think it's important to get a sense for how a firm firm like yours can compete with some of these professional buyers. Uh, But one question I do want to make sure we ask. You know, you've gone through three different deals. They haven't all been in New York, correct? The
1: first two were, and then the last yeah. deal that we just did, which we closed on December 31st of 2020, that was a DC Metro Northern Virginia based firm. And so now we have an office down there as well. Uh, we had a budding practice that was already sort of growing down there. And this was just a great compliment to that to give us a real nice uh, foothold in that area to grow from.
0: Sure. I, I bring it up just because it adds obviously some more complexity potentially, right? When you have new offices in different states and I'm sort of creating one team, one dream, right? When um, you're all of a sudden, you're going from being local to regional can definitely come with its challenges. And, and, and along those lines, the question that I have for you is three deals in. What do you know now about MA that you wish you knew when you first started going through the process several years ago?
1: yeah i would I would say the number one thing that I wish I knew is that I wish i I knew that I was capable of doing this earlier uh if not capable maybe maybe just that it could it could be done sooner. you don't necessarily have to be a billion dollar firm or a or a certain size all you have to do is have the inclination to do so and the willingness to understand all the factors that are involved that's for sure that that would be the number one thing I would say you know you just got to get into it
0: yeah yeah uh, that's very true, and it's not for everybody, but you know, knowing that you, know, you are a student of the business. You love the business of the business. I can understand you know, why why you say that now. And I am curious, so just kind of getting a little bit more general around the M&A activity. Um, we've seen that there have been, depending on the research you look at, 200 you know, or more deals in the, M- in the RIA and wealth management space annually for the last several years now. Uh, we've seen record levels of M&A activity for 9 to 10 years straight now. I don't anticipate that the M&A train slows down anytime soon, especially when you have some of these very large professional buyers that are backed by private equity. I don't know if you go head to head with them you know, directly when you're looking at some acquisition opportunities or just, you know, philosophically, you know, how you think about, you know, competing against some of those firms given how many other you know, advisors might be approaching retirement, thinking about a merger, thinking about a transition. So, I mean, how does a firm like yours how does a firm like Wealthstream you know, compete with the larger professional buyers of the year and what do you offer right that is unique and compelling to itself
1: yeah I, we we definitely do compete with them there's no question about it yeah. all the deals that we've done have been you know sub 150, 200 million dollars. So the, even though they're that small, these bigger firms are competing, or at least if not the biggest firms, some of the sub-firms. If you know some of the structures on some of the RIAs out there, is that there's a you know a, a firm of firms, and then that firm will actually yep. buy the smaller firms in some cases. So yep. we are we are competing with them, and uh, I think the major difference that we have to offer is that we're like them, Uh, or at least we're a lot closer uh, to them than, than these other firms are. And they also see that, you know, here I am, if I could be a little bit immodest for a second and just basically come in and say, Hey, I grew my practice just like you did. Um, I just decided to make it a little bigger at some inflection point, but what I get it. I started our practice from scratch. I feel where you are. I can. I can. I would never say I could put myself in your shoes, but I can understand where you are and how you feel about things. And I think we can relate better. And not only have we been able to do that uh, and come in and make them feel um, that good about it, is I think we've also been able to probably get better terms uh, than some of these other firms that could probably throw around a lot more money than we would, or maybe it's not even dollars. It's just the structure and and do it in a way that's that's even more advantaged, uh for us.
0: Yeah, that's a great point too, because a lot of the RIAs that I've talked to over the last couple of years who are selling, they don't wanna feel like they're being acquired, right? Um, regardless of what the deal terms and the sh- actual structure looks like, they really do wanna feel like they're merging with, you know, a, a firm that has similar philosophy, right? And I think that's what a firm like yours, Brings to the table that's interesting. Whether or not you know all the firms that are your size can compete with firms that are you know ten times the size may not always be the case in every you know transaction, but I do think it introduces a pretty compelling option. And, and with that, you know, I'm curious. I mean, how do you view some of the M and A opportunities that are available to WealthStream as we're looking out at 2022?
1: Yeah, I think it's great. I think there's going to be more and more and more of it. Um, the interesting thing also is that the firms that aren't attracted to a firm like ours and are attracted to the bigger firms are, are probably, in the, in, at the end of the day, better that we're not doing those deals. Because yeah. whether it's culturally or mentali- mentally speaking, they're not really looking for a firm like ours. So I don't want to force something that shouldn't be happening. And uh, I do think that this is going to continue to be the case. Uh there really does need to be more buyers out it, on the uh, universe because the firms need this solution, whether it's for succession, you know, kind most of the deals that we've been doing are really succession driven, but some mm-hmm. of them are driven because they, they need really some talent, you know, and, and those are other reasons we might do a deal is for talent or niches or, or, or in, in that last case, a geographic foothold.
0: Yep, and, and just a final question on the M&A, Front in the last few months that I was at Echelon, so roughly a year ago, I would say first quarter of 2021. I got more calls, you know, talked to more owners, leaders of RAA firms that are somewhat similar in size to yours who were looking to do an acquisition for the first time. Um, yeah, they'd grown largely through you know just organic growth, you know, strategic growth. Um, But once you get to a certain size, you you only move the needle a little bit, right? If you're you know, partner can bring in 10, 15 million in net new business every year. And maybe there's a little bit of the FOMO, right, going on with MA. So, yeah, with that, what advice would you have for a peer, somebody who's running a firm that's a billion, 1.1 billion in assets under management, who's considering making their first? acquisition.
1: There's a lot of things that we could talk about there. I would probably think the number one thing that they should talk about is make sure that their firm is ready for it. Make sure that their people are ready for it. You know, and from a capacity standpoint, probably first your ops team, because it's, it's an initial shock more to the operation side to the, the team than the advisory. The advisory more kind of slowly builds up, whereas the ops, it's kind of all at once. So make sure you have the, the, the physical practice capacity and then way more important than that, though, is the people capacity. You could destroy the morale in your firm pretty quickly by doing something that's not uh, something that's in line uh, with the team and that they're not on board. I, I was very transparent from the very beginning with my team, about everything that we were considering doing. And and even when we were in early stage, you know, a lot of people say, don't talk to your team in an early stage. I completely disagree. I think that the more transparent you are up front and why you're doing something, the better buy-in you're going to get. So so definitely making sure you have that capacity for the team. And then the other thing, which may be a little trite, you might hear this all the time, but it's important. Why? Why are you doing it? Knowing why, being able to explain that not only to your team, but also to the to the potential seller you know why are we in this so that's got to be a
0: compelling reason uh for that no no question about it yeah and i would add stamina to it as well right especially if you're <laughs> the one who's sort of leading it it could be an exhausting process that takes you know uh, six 12 months or more
1: yeah i i you know i'm really glad you mentioned that because it, it is uh you know a very uh intensive period that can last a really long time. And you go sort of these phases, right? So without really having any, any sort of science or outline around these phases, I would say the first phase is that obvious, that dating phase, right? And then there's this e- sort of elation when you get past the dating phase and say, okay, let's, let's see if we can make this work, right? And then you first start all over with sort of a, you know, a memorandum of understanding you know, or sort of the general deal terms. And th- that's a whole push. And while that's going on in the background, there's all these Emotions and thoughts and you know feelings about this on both sides and trying to make sure that everybody stays aligned and then there's an elation when you get the uh, that memorandum done and then after that there's a whole nother buildup of actually getting to the closing date and all the things that you know are coming about and now try doing one of these in a crazy market uh, where you have that last deal we did was right in the middle of COVID we had yeah. started the dating process pre-COVID COVID hit and you know so add these external forces. And then you close and then there's a whole nother probably 12 months of just the absorption uh, of going through the transaction. Uh, so yeah, it's, stamina is a great term.
0: Yeah. And the uh, the integration part, I mean, that's the whole point, right? That's the work. You have to, <laughs> you have to make it happen, that's right? right? So um, two right. through, right, is, uh, is the key there. I do want to make sure that we also touch on, while you've grown through the three acquisitions that you talked about before you've had some very good organic growth. So I do want to make sure uh, before we wrap that we spend a minute there. Um, we've talked to a lot of different people on RI Edge about things that have contributed to organic growth, and we're taking you know market appreciation and investment performance out of the mix. Um, as you look back over the last couple of years, whether it's some of the things that you've done from a marketing perspective or from a business development perspective, what have been some of the key contributors to your organic growth?
1: Yeah, so I would say it's probably occurred in, in two phases. Um, the first phase is probably what every successful uh, you know, advisor that's been able to bring in business over the years, and that's that I've been kind of networking since I'm eight years old. I just didn't know it was called networking, you know? And <laughs> you're just out there a lot. You know a lot of people. My, the fact that I'm a CPA by background has been pretty helpful because I, I have so many CPAs that are friends, uh, and I built those relationships. So building a great COI network and just having a good, solid, Uh, uh, background of of people to refer to, as well as taking care of your clients. So that's all table stakes and everybody knows that. I think the big thing for us here is that uh, building out this second gen of business development folks and recognizing that a lot of really good advisors aren't necessarily really good people at developing business. So being willing to make a big investment in that. And we went out and we hired somebody that we could bring in to help us. And it wasn't just some sort of typical sales training. It was really somebody who's gonna understand our process, sort of help us know what our playbook looks like for business development and the kind of services that we offer. And it's almost more like communication training and investing in that. And it's pretty expensive to put, you know, five people plus through a uh, a communication training kind of business over a couple of years, recognizing that it's not gonna bear fruit in the first year or two. So I think those two things have been a, a big plus And then, of course, you'd be crazy if you didn't recognize that kind of we've all been running downhill right now. I mean, the market Mm -hmm. and the wealth effect that's occurred has really been a big plus. And if anybody doesn't acknowledge that, then they're being a little naive.
0: Yeah. And I think you do have a lot of firms that have obviously grown through market appreciation, but they're at a point now and they have been for the last few years where they're thinking about strategically, how do I reinvest in the business so I can continue that growth in the absence of market appreciation, and I think a lot of people have looked at it from a technology standpoint, but also from you an organizational design and a human capital standpoint. And I, you know, I love the way you describe um, your business development strategy. You use the word process, which I think is important. It means it's scalable and it's repeatable, right? I and mean, what you're doing, you know, whether it's with the team you have today or the team you have in a year or two years, is doing it. Um, I imagine it doesn't. Or won't you know, stray much from you know, what it is, is sort of at the core right now. on the On the subject of that business development process, where are you finding the talent or the individuals who can do those types of roles? I think it's a pretty unique skill set, and there's not a huge talent pool out there. So I'm curious how you how you sourced those. roles. That's a really good point, Mark. Because the concept of the process is what gives people the confidence and the comfort to go
1: out and do that. Cause a lot of advisors actually, I would say probably some, most of the best advisors aren't necessarily good salespeople, but what they really are, are people that want to help just instinctively want to help people and they love what they do. So if you can combine that energy of, I want to help people and I love what I do and tell them that they're actually not selling, they're explaining and just mm-hmm. simply following a process to help explain of course you have to go through this education to learn what what certain person t- personality types are that somebody like me is probably ignorant to i don't i don't see the, i just instinctively know somebody wants to hear it this way or somebody wants to hear it that way but but other people that are more students of the process will will just learn that and then they'll be in a meeting and it's not sales to them they're just yep. getting that this person wants to learn it that way and this, and then they get comfort because most good advisors are also good students and they're able to to be able to just get champion about what they do.
0: Yeah, I know. I appreciate that. And I think it's a, it's a good piece of advice for others who are out there thinking about not just how do they grow, but if they need to add positions and they need to find talent ways that they can approach it. Cause I'll kind of default to one of the lines that came out of our RIA Edge valuation workshop in Boston last month. It's easier to acquire talent than it is to hire talent in the RIA industry right now. And that is very, very true. So you're building it, which is another tack there. So thank you very much for pointing that out and adding it to the mix here. Uh, Michael, before we let you run, are there any other closing thoughts or any other pieces of advice that you'd have as you kind of think about growth, whether it's on the M&A side, Or organic growth that as you're looking at opportunities ahead in 2022 would be important for any leader of an RIA firm to consider.
1: Yeah, I think it goes back into what are your motivations, as we talked about a little bit earlier. You know, I'm in that unique position, perhaps, compared, surely, compared to some of the biggest firms out there, maybe not compared to a lot of firms that are like mine. Uh, in the sense that you know we're it 's not like we have to grow to meet some sort of goal that some other investor has it 's what do we want to do as a firm and getting everybody on board and I think the idea that we 've always focused on a sort of team first mentality as opposed to r o i or even client first mentality we 're a team first mentality, and I think by making sure that the team's on board, they know why they know what. Uh, I think you're going to, ha- and, and actually more importantly, perhaps that they're formulating what the strategy is and you're just helping lead that process. I think you're going to be way more successful than pushing it down
0: from the top. Definitely. You are uh, you know, still you know, what most RA started out as, which were you know, entrepreneurs, right? And That's right. You're not as small a business as you were, right? Still- in the category of you know, small businesses. So appreciate you taking some time out, Michael. It's always a pleasure to talk. And I appreciate you also just sharing with our audience as much detail and as much insight into your growth as you have here. Incredibly helpful.
1: Thank you, Mark. It's really been a joy to be with you. And I look forward to our next conversation.
0: Thank you so much for having me. And again, that's Michael Goodman from WellStream offering his thoughts on his firm's growth. Again, just crossed the billion-dollar threshold in 2021. So congratulations. If any of our audience has any additional questions or would like to learn a little bit more about valuation, M&A activity, just growth in general, we are now hosting our RIA Edge Valuation Workshops. We'll be hosting them in Boston, in Washington, D.C., Atlanta, and Chicago in the first quarter and the second quarter of this year. And also we'll be hosting our main event, Wealth Management Edge, right after Memorial Day. So for more information, just go to informaconnect.com edge, and you can register for those events and check out who will have speaking there. And be sure to check out other episodes of RIA Edge, where we go behind the scenes with some of the fastest growing and most successful leaders of RIA firms in the wealth management industry. Thank you again, Michael, for joining us here today. And thank you everybody else for tuning in. I'm Mark Bruno, and we'll see you on the next episode of RIA Edge. Schwab Advisor Services is proud to support the RIA Edge podcast and equally proud to support independent financial advisors like you. In a challenging year, how did 68% of firms surveyed in Schwab's RIA Benchmarking Study meet or exceed their new client goals? By following key success factors such as leveraging new technology, adapting strategies to win new business, and stay connected with their clients, while also attracting and developing the right talent. The Schwab RIA Benchmarking Study is just one of many ways They provide you with the insights and resources needed to succeed and grow. Get the full picture at advisorservices.schwab.com.